climbing the mountain, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And someone had given me a quote from St. Francis of Assisi, he said, first you do what's possible, then you do the difficult, and then finally you've accomplished the impossible. So I just thought, yes, I'm going to do it. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no-barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain, between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit, exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today we meet Anne Lorimer, who is not your typical great-grandmother sitting in her rocking chair. At age 85, Anne broke the record for being the oldest woman to climb Mount Kilimanjaro the highest freestanding mountain in the world. Her record was soon broken, so at age 89, she returned to the mountain to reclaim the record. In July of 2019, she became the oldest person to summit Mount Kilimanjaro, giving her a place in the 2020 Guinness Book of World Records. Coming from a childhood of poverty and homelessness, Anne founded Lorimer Child Empowerment Foundation, also known as Creating Exciting Futures, in 2016. Her desire is to give youth the tools to reach their full potential and encourage them to pay it forward. Enjoy the conversation. Everyone, welcome to No Barriers. Jeff, you just got back from Nepal last night, huh? I did, yep. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like I, I'm, I probably will not be the most spirited person in the conversation, but... Um... Yeah, we just uh, had an amazing family trip. To, you were delivering stoves, um, right, to these we remote villages? You know, you and I have been all over Nepal, but we went to a place that I'd never been, which was far, far west. It took us two days to get there. As any good journey, like getting there is is uh, sometimes the hardest part. So it took us several days to get there. Then we went to this little community that uh, they're not used to seeing people that, that uh, are from other parts and we did some good work there and, and, and made a lot of new friends. Uh, so pretty happy to be back. And I guess, Eric, this is the first time we've spoken to you since your triumphant return up Amina Blom. Yeah, we tried a peak in 2000, Amina Blom, and fell short. Spent, what, a week at, eight, at 20,000 feet trying to endure the storm. And uh, so we actually ran out of food and fuel and came down the mountain and one of the guys on the on the mountain climb fell, and uh, so the r- climb quickly turned from a fun adventure to a rescue mission. So anyway, yeah, we just went back last week or last month um, after what nineteen years of a hiatus. We went back and uh, made it to the top of Amada Blanc, twenty two thousand four hundred and fifty feet or something like that. So we had a cold, windy clear, satisfying day at that altitude. So uh, it's a perfect segue into our amazing guest, Ann Lormer, 
who uh, is also a mountain climber. And uh, welcome to the No Barriers podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Congratulations on your big climbs. Well, I do get to claim the Guinness World Record for the oldest person to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Twice, yeah, and you're, right? You're crazy enough, yeah, to do it twice, not to just be uh, satisfied with with uh, a one-time ascent, but actually coming back and, and doing it again, right? Well, I was beaten out of uh, my title as oldest woman in about four months the first time, and I didn't think that would do since I was doing it for my charity. Well, all right, so... You sound like a competitive spirit. So what happens next? <laughs> like, is this, is this still, is this like a running competition in your mind? Are you keeping an eye on things? Is there somebody on your tail ready to beat you? Uh, and you're going to have to go back a third time now. <laughs> I, I don't know. When I was there, a, a guide came to see me at my hotel after I got back. And he said, you know, I want my picture with you. It was my client that had the record before. He said, and I want to take you when you're a hundred. Nice. Oh, that's impressive. So, so did we did we mention the age? Did, or I can't remember. I was 89, the oldest woman and the oldest person to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. All right, obvious question then. Have you always been a mountain climber or how did you get this idea to climb Kilimanjaro the first time? I'm not a professional and never have been, but I've loved climbing since I was a little girl. I lived up in northern New Mexico at 7,000 feet with mountains all around us. I used to climb. And then uh, in um, high school, I read Snows of Kilimanjaro. And I just thought, oh, isn't that a wonderful place? But only about, oh, I don't know, seven years ago, did I decide my nephew and niece said, we're going to climb Kilimanjaro. And I said, well, let me go with you. I thought they'd laugh at me. They said, sure. <laughs> and so then an organization I belong to has a member who's the oldest person to have climbed all of the seven summits. And he was leading a group up Kilimanjaro. So I said, hey, he'll know what older people need for climbs. I'm going with him. And that was the one. And, and then the any interesting thing was, I just was going to be an old person climbing for charity. But then he put it off a year. And then I was the oldest woman to climb. That, that was at like 85, right? Or something right. like that. Yeah, 2015. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which was harder, 80, 85 or 89? 85. Five would have been harder because I didn't do any core training. I just walked and climbed, but I fell in the safari just before I climbed this time. Oh. And I had a lot of pain and I was really worried that I wouldn't be able to do it. So I made them test my oxygen in the middle of the night and I passed and I said, okay, I'm going, but it hurt all the way. And so it was harder. Then I came home, found that I had three broken ribs. Wow. You're like the de- you're straight up stud, Anne. I mean, you're, so you're you're 89 years old. How many how many more little pieces of adversity can you stack up on you to be able to do it? So you had broken ribs. You're 89 years old, um, and you'd already done it once before. So you knew you knew what you were getting. You knew into. how hard it was. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> you knew what you were getting into, and you still said, "I'm going to keep firing away." You knew how hard that summit night was going to be. Well, I had um, a a film crew along. They're doing a documentary. And when I was there, I thought, you know, I've got to make this. Too many people are counting on me. Nobody wants a documentary of a failed climb. So I made myself do it. How was the summit day? Was it pretty long? Was it pretty hard? It was pretty long. We actually didn't do it in the middle of the night the way we did before. And Mm -hmm. this time I had plenty of warm clothing. Before I had enough layers, but it wasn't warm enough. This time I did not get cold at all. I was fine there. So 
So it, it, you know, just, other than the pain, I was doing just fine. And you're from Phoenix, right? So you're yeah. not you're really used to cold weather. Exactly. I, <laughs> I had gone up northern Arizona. They've got some seven thousand, nine thousand feet up there, and I got a little bit of, of climatization before I went. Well, you know, I mean, Eric and I have both spent a fair bit of time on Killy, and people underestimate that hill. They always do, and I always tell people, I don't care how good you are. I've taken a lot of veterans up that mountain and I had a SEAL Team 6 guy, like a Team 6 guy, right? Who <laughs> on summit night said it was one of the hardest things he had ever done that summit night going up there. People underestimate it. So, I mean, for you to have done it twice, clearly you're a glutton for punishment and you seem to enjoy, you enjoy a little bit of suffering, I imagine. I wouldn't say that, but I can take hardship because I grew up that way. And my cause is very important. I founded Creating Exciting Futures to help kids that don't know their options, know them and get the tools to go where they really want to go and then give back. And it's very important to me. I guess I am a little competitive as well. <laughs> so did that um, nonprofit, that foundation come out of the climbing or the climbing came out of the foundation? Which, which comes first? I have been helping kids all my life. It was a three-generation thing with my family. And so I was always doing something with kids. Family Promise, which is Transitional Homeless, Rosie's House, Music Academy for Children, a lot of other things, Youth at Risk. I was a mentor for a little girl for about, oh, guess, 15 years from when she was six until she was 21. And so I was always working at it. But when I did the climb, I right away decided I wanted to do it to help the cause. And Lorimer Child Empowerment Foundation, is that connected with what you're just talking about? We do business as creating exciting futures. I'd like eventually to have a real endowment fund that will be able to operate off the proceeds from it so that even in bad years I can keep helping the kids and in good years I can help a lot more and what does it mean to like help them um, build the tools and stuff like that what what's beyond the mission like uh, what are some of the cool things that have come out of the of that work let me tell you about some of the programs for one thing I give them scholarships to teen feast and that's a youth program of CEO Space International. And what they learn things like networking and brainstorming, and they uh, get mentors they'll have for life. They'll, they'll have business connections for life. They get to have meals with faculty. They have a membership in the uh, CEO space for the rest of their lives. And, and I've just seen them. Everyone that's ever gone has just been over the moon at the end of the session. Mm. And one of them, for example, was a kid that... Um, he said to me when we uh, I asked his big brother to recommend him, he said, you know, my family never wins anything. Mm -hmm. Well, we selected him. And he went there and he had a fabulous time. He has been cooking since he was six years old and he wants to be a chef and have his own restaurant. So he and another a couple of kids there brainstormed a fusion restaurant. And one of the faculty members knows a lot about grants, told him there were grants available for basic services in underserved areas and low income areas. And so now he's come home about a year later. He graduated high school. I thought, well, in this state, foster kids, only about 33 percent of them graduate high school. And no one in his family had ever graduated high school. So I was very proud of him. His family came and they were also very proud of him. 
So now he's working in a restaurant, getting the basic experience he needs. And I've been able to introduce him to a restaurant owner. And I also have several others that are ready to meet him when the time comes. So they're great possibilities that weren't there for the kid before. And so a lot of our, our guests have had, I think, paradigm shifting events happen to them at some point in their lives that ultimately became the catalyst for them doing extraordinary things. And what little I do know about you, it sounds like your formative years were that for you. Um, am I right? You were born during the Great Depression and, and you, were, you had a massive family, a lot of kids, right? And, and uh, can you just maybe give us a, a taste of a little bit about um, your youth and, and how that impacted why you chose this path? I, as you said, I was born at the beginning of the Great Depression. I was the oldest of 10 children. That was the first family. We had a second family later with four more kids. And my parents and my everybody in my family cared about kids. My uh, grandfather had taken in five orphans and brought them up when an orphanage failed. My mother and father had a children's home and school. And I used to take care of those little babies when I was nine years old. You know, bathe them and dress them and feed them, do everything little kids need. And then when we moved away from there, we were homeless for a while. And then my second grade teacher stayed in touch with us and she paid my tuition at a boarding school in California. I think that was a very important event. And I feel like I want to pay that forward. Hmm. You're kind of a chronic, you're kind of a chronic underachiever, right? So you've got like, you've got (laughs) bachelor's and master's and PhD. You got a lot of acronyms after your name. So clearly you just kind of sat around, right? <laughs> Never did anything. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to get it accurate, I have two bachelors, <laughs> two masters, and a PhD. And I also have had an RN, something else. That was a fallback position for me. <laughs> so you, your work with kids now fuels you to go do the Kilimanjaro climb to bring attention to your organization, maybe as a fundraiser. Was that how it, it happened? How did you get that idea? I, I, I w- once walked in a marathon in uh, Phoenix for uh, mental health. And I, I read them all, about them all the time where they use things to get money for the organizations that they really want to help. And I just thought this would be pretty dramatic, especially after it turned that I was going to be the oldest woman. And I just did want to get attention and funds for the programs that I carry out. Were you like scared a little bit going to, I mean, I guess you traveled a ton, so maybe it wasn't that scary, but attacking this big mountain at 85, wasn't that a bit intimidating? Some people in my group were intimidated by just being abroad. I've been in more than 100 countries, so that part does not intimidate me. Oh, right. Walked into Nigeria years and years ago at the very start of the civil war. So uh, you learn not to be very afraid. (laughs) Right. Climbing the mountain it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And someone had given me a quote from St. Francis of Assisi said, first you do what's possible, then you do the difficult. And then finally you've accomplished the impossible. So I just thought, yes, I'm going to do it. And I wasn't injured at that time. So it was easier from that point of view. How did you know? I mean, because that's a good life lesson, you know, one foot in front of the next and uh, you know, but, but, when it comes to a mountain, how did you know that just from all your act- activities, uh, you know, hiking and being active throughout your life? Well, I've climbed the mountains 
over much of the Southwest in Colorado, yeah. down in Mexico. I mm-hmm. did Ayers Rock in Australia before they banned it. I climbed the Great Pyramid in Egypt before they banned that. So I've had a fair amount of climbing experience. I've never, I'm not a professional. I've never done it with ropes, but I've just done it because I liked it. And then what was that like when you, all right, so you go up and you climb this thing and you're really excited, I imagine. And then uh, you're, you know, you're the oldest woman to do so. And then four months later, you find out that it gets broken. Who broke it? And what, how'd you feel at first? It, it was a Russian woman who did it to keep a vow to her sister. And when I saw her, it looked to me as if people were virtually carrying her up the mountain. I didn't think it looked very fair. But what I decided <laughs> was I would do it myself. I was going to do it in 88 and, and, and be the oldest person. At that time, the oldest man, I think, was 87. Mm-hmm. But then this man from um, Colorado who lived, I believe, at 9,500 feet or something like that. He came and he climbed it and he was using oxygen. And again, I said, hey, that's not very fair, but I'm going to put it off for a year. And and after that, I won't. If I I, I mean, even I could run out of steam after a while. So I'll do it in in 89, no matter what. Cool. So it wasn't a it it probably was a bit of a shock at first though right that oh i have to go back and do this again now well it it really startled me because i thought i didn't have the guinness record because they hadn't got all the things through but i still i knew i knew i was the oldest woman but then all of a sudden here's this woman and she just popped up when i was talking to somebody that i that wanted to work with me in my organization it was a shock and it was uh, made me quite sad actually because i really wanted to help the kids a lot and being having my 15 minutes of fame might get more attention for the cause. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, you know that you know this, but like when I was going to kayak the Grand Canyon, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be the only blind person to have ever done this. And it turns out there's another guy who is kayaking the Grand Canyon who is blind almost at the same time. Actually, we turned out that we became friends and uh, I invited him along on some of my expeditions and we've become really good friends. But yeah, that's the way I felt at first. Like, oh man, who is this guy raining on my parade? It was a little bit of a shock at first. There you go, and like next next time around, you you could do you could team up with the Russian gal, and you guys could do like uh, no, not an she's option. Not, you could be she's a not going to she's not going to be able to do it again. I'm telling no, you, no. She she carried, she both arms there, when right. I saw her in the pictures, and I thought, nope, <laughs> that that she's, I don't think she. Now the man might be able to do it again. But I don't think he cares. It was his daughter that got him up there. But I did meet the man who was a, what we say, a quadruple um, congenital quadriplegic. And they put pads on him. Somebody from Phoenix did actually, K2. And he struggled his way up the mountain. I really admired him. He has such it's a such a small spirit. world. This is such a small world because we know the guy who founded, one of the founders of K2 in Phoenix. And uh Kevin Chirilla? Yeah, Kevin Chirilla. And I think yeah. we we're talking about Kyle Maynard. Oh, who's, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you were on the mountain the same time he was? I don't know. I don't think so. I uh-huh. met him later in Phoenix. And uh, K2 is doing some wonderful things, too. I really admire the things they do. Yeah, we should get Kyle on this podcast. But Kyle Maynard is a quadruple amputee. And he kind of crabbed his way to the summit of Kilimanjaro. They put pads uh, with on With an amazing it. team, yeah. So he's incredible. Yes, I thought so. Uh, actually, some K2 people were on the mountain at the same time, and we saw them. We camped at some of the same places, but we didn't really meet them until I came back. 
Right. Let me, let me just give Eric and No Barriers a little bit of credit here because Kyle showed up to one of the No Barriers events um, many, many moons ago, and he had never hiked or climbed ever, period, nothing, other than navigating you know, some hills and city streets. And Eric, in the No Barriers spirit, saw a problem and saw a challenge with trying to create mobility for Kyle and started improvising and uh, eventually got Kyle up a big peak in Colorado. And then ultimately that was sort of the, the platform for him to go on and do what you're referencing. So he's another byproduct of people um, taking note of some of, of an issue and, and creating energy and excitement and improvisation around, you know, around intention. And so here's to you, Big E. Our technologies were pretty bad at first, though. We pretty much yeah. just wrapped his uh, stumps up with uh, some foam, some bath towels, packing tape. And I yeah. believe we put uh, we put Safeway shopping bags over the whole outfit. And then he just be- pretty much just kind of crabbed his way to the top. So and, and uh, was there and he did it totally independently. We were just hiking along beside him. You've got to give him credit. He said that his parents always encouraged him, but he was ready to take on the challenge. And so you had really fertile field to work with. Right. Yeah. So, Ann, you know, Eric and I have spent our, our lives in the mountains uh, and we always, you know, are not afraid to showcase the metaphor that is so very clear with what a, an individual and a team experiences in the mountains and how it perfectly translates to so much of what we do in life, um, all the way of starting at the beginning, defining objectives, seeing an issue, like we were just talking about, seeing a problem, figuring out how to attack it, establishing a team, and then going out and executing, finding these moments of pain, right, that, that, that exist out there. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of me- the metaphorical connection you've made with, with the things that you've done and, and how it relates to not only just your life, but your life's work? We are, I'm, I'm working with uh, a woman writing a book about my experience in my life. The title of the book is Climbing for Change, Overcoming Challenges on the Way to the Top. We're going back into my life and saying, you know, climbing from poverty, climbing from ignorance, climbing from adversity, all those things. And that I, I liked her metaphor that it wasn't mine originally. Um, I was going to do a book, but just do it kind of chronologically and bring in the things only that I thought related to this particular climb and the works that I do. Uh, I do think that your life has a lot to do with the thing you choose to get involved in. And the fact that I was homeless at one time and that we were very poor and that there have been foster kids in the family, all of those things made a difference. And so I like to help low-income, at-risk children, and I focus on foster, homeless, and orphan children because they're the ones that particularly, uh, I feel they, they, they face very special challenges. I do think that obviously every child has to have food, clothing, and shelter. They have to have that before I get them. But I would also help them find those things if I found kids that had potential. But my own program is simply to help them live lives they love, really have great careers, and then give back. We breezed over, Anne. I don't know if you feel comfortable. I mean, just say a pass if you're not interested. But you, we, we kind of breezed over the homelessness part of your life. That's a pretty big deal as a kid. You had mentioned it in passing. 
Could you dive into that a little more? I never thought of part of it, but we did live with my grandmother for a while between times, and I guess that's a kind of homelessness, but I never thought of it. I felt very secure. But then after we had the uh, children's home and school in New Mexico, some people came in that disapproved of some of the things my father had done. And so they sort of shunned us. If we'd been Amish, that's what it would have been. He wasn't allowed to speak in church anymore, and he wasn't allowed to testify or any of the things people do, and that's important to them. So we left, and we went out in this great big old truck that my father built a cage on, and we, he put um, canvas over the top, like sort of like the um, old covered wagons. Right. We did that, I don't know, over a month. And then we came on out to Arizona, found a place where my, my mother did the gardening and my father did some printing, and we went to school there. And But we didn't want to stay there. He wanted his own work. So we bought some property in Phoenix in, in an area that's very, very, very slummy now. Uh, but anyway, we had to school then. And when when I was just in the eighth grade, I sort of did the part of the teaching because it was a one room schoolhouse. So I, I taught the uh, third graders their math and their English and their spelling. And then about that time, you weren't able to build. It was wartime. And so we had this property and we put this tent on it. And we lived there in that tent, I think, over a year with just bare earth floors and no electricity, running water, telephone, anything of that sort. But the thing was, somehow, I, I never thought this was permanent. We never did lose hope. People were often kind. And as I said, my second grade teacher stepped up and furnished the money for my boarding school. And then later on, we built a building there that's still standing and is still in use. My brother did a lot of the bricklaying just as a very small boy. And I helped put in the floor myself. And I don't think I've ever been so tired in my life as when we put in this concrete floor by hand. But then we did have a place to live. And so the homelessness was over. It scared me one more time when my parents separated and I was just grown and ready to go on my own. And I didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And then I got accepted by a nursing school in Cincinnati. And it was the kind where you lived in the dorm and did your stuff. And so I thought, oh, for three years, I'm safe. So this wasn't, first of all, the first time you'd, you'd uh, you know, roughed it, your Kilimanjaro climb. You'd, you've been roughing it in the past. And so you were used to that kind of resiliency in your life. I said that, but anybody that wants to climb Kilimanjaro has to be willing to rough it. You go for the whole time. In our case, it was seven days without showers. It yeah. just isn't the same to have a basin of partially hot water some of the time. And I thought we were fed very well, but some people complained a lot about that, too. <laughs> Sounds like also uh, your childhood, uh, even though you face hardship in times where you really needed it, like when your teacher stepped up and provided your scholarship to the school, you know, you had people stepping up uh, in the community and supporting you in crucial moments. So that's probably a part of your motivation with your own foundation to give back, right? You have to pay it forward. I was given so much help. I had wonderful teachers all along the way. And one of them particularly broadened my horizons in ways you can't imagine. She took me to concerts and she Another another old woman took me to, uh, oh, can you imagine a book luncheon? <laughs> Somebody uh-huh. on my level wouldn't get to go to a book luncheon. And, and, and also she put, said something else to me that's really stuck. She talked about a friend that she met who inherited something. And she said, but she spent her capital. 
So I always knew that I wanted to have an endowment fund that we spent only the interest from so that it, that it would never go away. Mm. And, and that's another one of my programs with the kids is financial literacy. I have an arrangement with a major bank that they can have a low balance, no fee account. And we also give them information on this so they can learn to handle their money. Amazing. You know, the, the fact that you, you had this experience from this second grade teacher and you reference her many times. Um, and I, I feel like there's, there is, seems to be in every person that I speak to, there's, there's typically one, one individual, whether it's a parent, a family member, in this case, it was your teacher. Um, and oftentimes it is a teacher that finds a way to make a contribution to an individual's life. And perhaps they don't even know how impactful that it is. I'm wondering, do you, that second grade teacher, how much of your trajectory now that you look back over your life, how much of your trajectory do you feel came from, from that person, from that one individual? It was a tremendous boost to me. And I did stay in touch with her other times throughout my life. She moved to California and I visited her. Every time I visited her, I felt uplifted somehow because she, she believed in me. She really did. And that, that was helpful. But I also do give credit to some of the other teachers who were very uh, impactful on my life. Mm-hmm. So how active are you now? Are you still, what's your, what's your training program look like today? You know, how do you stay active? You're not climbing Kilimanjaro. I, I do what I did to train. I go walking every day with my little dog. And we have mountains around my house. I climb those. And we've set up a local hikers group, the people that want to support my cause. And about once a month, we go out and hike the peaks around. We've done Dreamy Draw and Papago Buttes and did the superstitions, you know, various things that are fun. And I just know that you cannot stop at my age. I cannot afford to get unfit. It would be hard, no, no, too no. hard to get back. No, it's, uh, we say this all the time. It's, it's easier to, to stay fit than it is to get fit. Right. And even for younger people, for older people, it might be almost impossible. <laughs> I really got unfit to get yeah. it back. Yeah. I mean, your goal is to take care of your hips and your shoulders. All right. And make sure, <laughs> make sure that, cause honestly, like your hips and your shoulders. Uh, Don't forget my knees. They're my important knees. too. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll throw the knees in there too. Yeah. My friend, uh, Charlie says, uh, motion is lotion. Oh, <laughs> that's actually true. Isn't it? Like I, when I you would spin go around, that. you actually hurt worse. And sometimes when I'm hiking and I start to get a twinge here or there, I say to myself, my synovial fluid is forming freely. All my joints move with comfort and ease. Yeah. Wait, is that your mantra? You do that? Yeah, it's an affirmation there. Yes. Uh, the mantra about the kids is what we give them is a hand up, not a handout. Ooh. All right. I like it because you're not, you're not uh, gifting necessarily. You're not saying like, here is your here is your gift. Uh, I'm going to do this for you. This is you saying, um, I'm going to give you an opportunity, right? To be able to then do what you will with it. Is that accurate? Exactly. And when we go off to the teen feast, uh, I ask them to have $200. They get all the things I told you, the, the food, lodging, the membership, the meals, all that. But they have to have a couple of hundred for the meals that aren't provided and for their own personal expenses. Yeah, skin in the game, so, right? Right away. I want yeah. skin in the game. You're so yeah. right. And now, Anne, when, 
you climb Kilimanjaro, obviously there's a fundraising and awareness component, but I imagine there's got to be also this exemplary living kind of component as well, where you are a trailblazer, right? You're, you're saying to these kids like, Hey, you have barriers. I have age barriers and all kinds of barriers, and I'm still going to do something big. So there's an inspirational quality to your message as well, right? I think there is, and it reaches not only the young people that I want to help, it reaches older people and, and their children who are responsible for them, who feel that they can do more. And I did say something else recently that people say, oh, it's easy for Anne. She's so fit and healthy. But the point is, I am a cancer victor, more than a survivor of more than 30 years. I have a replacement shoulder. I also have osteoporosis, which I battle. Thinner people often have that problem. And I had an ankle so shattered that it had 13 pieces of metal in it to help it heal. Hmm. So my life is not perfect, but it doesn't stop me from going on. Or pain-free, I imagine. <laughs> There's still some pain in the, in the shoulder. I never, I ignore it. <laughs> right. We keep unearthing these interesting layers of you and how you've just decided that you're not going to be a victim in any sense, right? You're not, you're not going to feel sorry for yourself. You're not going to, you're not going to wallow. Um, you're, you're just saying it is what it is. I'm going to manage it. Right. So you seem to be quite the, you know, efficient at managing both, you know, in so many different aspects of your life. When you describe me, people often use the word persistent. And so that is, and, and I give as, as a piece of advice to people, when you found your focus, never, ever quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how's the foundation doing now? How's your work doing? Did the did the climbs, uh, that 15 minutes of fame, bring you guys to a good level? I don't handle the fundraising part very well, but I've hired a new assistant who's going to help me. You're a good manager. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're getting out an end-of-year letter to let people know what's happening and what's going, and I think they'll be excited about it. We have one other program I haven't talked about, and that is we do Youth Toastmasters program. My feeling is that if a child can express himself well and uh, feel comfortable doing so, no matter what career he goes into, it'll help him. It'll even help him in his, in his life. And I've seen remarkable things. We had one little kid that came into our first class and he, he just, his head was down in his chest and he could already speak for even a minute about himself at the beginning. But at the end of the course, he spoke for five minutes with his head up and I just love to see the things happen where kids get themselves a better shot at life and doing the things they really want to do in life. That's awesome. We just talked to to someone else uh, recently on one of our, on one of our podcasts about how storytelling is honestly like the really the best form of exchanging information. It's the format that we as humans ingest the most effectively. And I think that in your, what you're saying right there with the, the youth Toastmaster idea, you're, you're teaching children how to tell stories in, in an effective way, right? Well, that, that certainly is one of the things they do. They have what we call an icebreaker where they talk about their own lives and, and it is telling a story. And in my own Toastmasters group, we tell lots of stories and I, I love telling stories. That's something I've enjoyed since I was a little girl. You're a good storyteller. Thank you. There's a lot of history in terms of uh, just people breaking the age barrier one thing after the next. You know, like there, you know, I see a lot of 
folks with disabilities breaking through barriers like Kyle. But I think age is another sort of great horizon or, you know, that, that we're going to be just crushing currently, but in the future, right? Do you see yourself as a kind of a pioneer, um, you know, kind of maybe an exemplar of how to, how to be active, um, you know, as we age? I can certainly think that about myself. I sometimes joke and say, I've got another 30 years. Of course, nobody knows what's going to happen the next day. But I keep thinking that I, I want to keep active as long as I'm alive. And I want to keep helping other people. Somebody asked me to describe myself once. And I said, I was adventurous, curious, caring, and persistent. So I don't, I don't want to lose any of that. Do you get like organizations that contact you and want you to be like the spokesperson? Do you get a lot of folks that uh, write you and are just, you know, motivated to go do cool things because of you? A lot more people talk to me than write to me because I do give speeches and, and small things so far. I'm planning to start a real speaking career where I reach larger audiences. But where I have spoken, I, I spoke one time for a congresswoman's audience of seniors in uh, California and a lot of them came up after me and said how inspiring it was and even on the airplane came coming back someone was talking to my nephew and saying that he wanted to tell his parents about me because they were sort of just gone into the slumping old age and he didn't want to see it happen so I really believe there's a lot that can be done I and, and I have pretty simple rules about it and I simply say you want to keep yourself as fit and healthy as possible in mind body and spirit so that means an exercise regime and I stress, choose one that you enjoy. If I said if I went to my trainer and he told me to do jumping jacks, I would have gone away. I just wouldn't have done it. But if you do something you love, which I love the walking and the hiking, and he had me in all kinds of machines I hadn't had before, and that was actually kind of fun. He got me a balance board this second time, and I was doing the battling ropes and the elliptical machine, <laughs> wow. all kinds of things that, that I hadn't done the first time. So if I hadn't hurt myself, I would have been in much better shape for climbing. Yeah. Do, you share, do you share you doing these things anywhere on any platform of you doing the battle ropes and doing the balance board and stuff? We have a Facebook page called Creating Exciting Futures. And then I have my personal page, Ann Lorimore. And also, I'm on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, and we post some of the things. And we're hoping to get me back on Instagram again, because I think people do find it inspiring. And, yes. and I want to encourage them. Yes, that's the storytelling aspect, right? Like you are telling a story every single day. And, um, you know, I think all of us that that's the only reason I look at social media is to continue to get fired up. Right. And I think if people can watch you, um, do your thing, um, it, you know, that, 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 that yeah, it's, it spreads, you, the, spreads the love. Yeah. It extends your reach. Right. It that, that's exactly. Reach. We want to spread the love. I love the uh, quotation from Mother Teresa where she said, we can't all do great things but we can all do small things with great love. Oh, wow. You, well, that touches on, I, I mean, you've talked about the mind and the body. What about the, the spirit side? What's your, what's your guiding principles with spiritual stuff? Has that been, had an impact in your life? I mean, I know when I head to the mountains, I can't see the mountains like Kilimanjaro, but I feel the connection with something greater in nature for sure. There's a quotation from the old King James version of the Bible where it said, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. 
And I've always felt inspired when I look at mountains. Being in touch with nature has always been important to me. And I know that it helps me keep going. So if, if, if I'm, one of the things I say to people, you have to handle your stress and you find ways to do it that suit you. And mine are walking or hiking or swimming, or maybe just going out in nature and absorbing the quiet. And I also read funny books when I'm really down and it does, it gives me a boost. You read funny books. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I think it was Norman Cousins that wrote something about um, how he cured himself of cancer by, or, or something, I don't remember what it was, by reading amusing books. And I find it helps me. I think laughter is one of the things that relieves stress and makes your endorphins flow and helps you uh, be healthier. Uh, one other thing I haven't mentioned, and that is that I tell people, do get deeply involved in a cause greater than yourself. There are all kinds of ways to volunteer or to donate or things of that sort. And I really believe that it helps you. And there, there's been some research that shows that actually giving to others gives you a healthier, your body a healthier boost. And I really am for that. And if we all paid it forward, it could ripple over the whole world and the world would be a better place. Do you think also that's personally like it creates longevity to have this cause, this thing, this purpose that's bigger than you that keeps you powering forward? I think it very well could. Uh, I had an uncle that retired and he was bored silly and I tried to get him into volunteer and other work. He never did. And he just died. No reason. He just died. So I believe that if you have something outside yourself, it, it does help you to to get to keep the health and fitness to carry on. Do you see people like that? Like where, you know, that you like your uncle who, you know, they've just lost their mojo. They lost their purpose. They're getting older and they're just like, I've done everything uh, I can do in my life. And now it's just like the slide downward. Do you see, do you see that? Or do you have mostly people that are pretty inspirational around you? Well, the people I have around me are pretty inspirational. But when I go out, I do see people of the other sort. And I, I just feel bad for them because there's so much so much to do out there and so much that's exciting and worthwhile. Yeah, if you can stay active and stay present and stay motivated. You you have to do that. Uh, otherwise, you can. We had, there was a man at church that was quite a hiker when he was young. So when he got to be 60, he said, mm, well, guess I'm going to have to phase it out. Can't do it anymore. Somebody talked him into doing a few more hikes. And he realized that he, he could keep right on. And now he's 70 and still going strong. He's, he's encouraged me a lot when he knew about my climbs as well. Well, our whole No Barriers community is is all about that sense of community and inspiring each other because it's it becomes a, 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 a difficult ask to be self-inspired all the time. We talk about like, you know, go out there and do hard things and create purpose. And, you know, that's that's easy to say. And then you still have to get your your own butt up out of bed and and make it happen. And so clearly, Anne, like you, you uh, walk that walk. And I can only hope that, uh, you know, that people see you and hear you and watch you and are inspired by you. And I know you've done that. And then obviously the legacy that you've created with, with, um, with creating a platform for young people is extraordinary in every sense. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. 
Well, yeah. I'm really happy to talk with you. It's always a yeah. pleasure. Thank you for spending some of your time. And, and you know, we, we think very highly of you and everything that you've done and, and uh, really appreciate you spending some time and sharing your message with us. Well, just let me refer you and other people to creatingexcitingfutures.org. Tells about me, the climb, the cause, and a lot of other things and gives you a chance to contribute yourself if you want to. It is a great website. I spent some time on there too. And Anne, thank you for breaking through so many barriers for us all. Well, I, I admire your cause and uh, I, I admire K2, all the people that are in there helping people live the fullest life they could live. I'm for that. Good. Awesome. Jeff, all right. Yeah. Go ahead, Want to debrief a second here? Yeah, I'll go. I'll, I'll take a, a stab at, at this one because um, <laughs> Anne is, you know, I don't know about you, man, but, you know, Eric, you and I both have had a monumental birthday um, recently and, and aging is is something that I think about a, a lot um, now. I didn't used to. Youth is lost on the young, right? So, um, <laughs> And so now um, I think about it a lot. And I think about legacy and I think about purpose. And um, I needed I needed Anne today. As I'm feeling tired from coming back from Nepal just last night, I, I feel uh, I, my body feels tired and my mind feels a little sluggish. And um, she's my cup of coffee this morning because uh, <laughs> I needed I needed to to hear what it's like to uh, be reminded uh, of of what it means to establish that or continue to establish that purpose and um, continue to see ways to impact um, the the world uh, in positive ways um, and embrace this whole chronology of life and allow that tapestry of Anne's life to be told over and over again and um, with the effort of, of inspiring young people and giving them the opportunity based on her experiences and how she, you know, struggled uh, early on um, just from circumstantial situation that she was in with her family and then found a way to pay it forward in, in a pretty dramatic way. So... I'm I'm grateful to Anne for for giving me that kick in the pants uh, that I needed today. So, what about you, E? Yeah, for sure, same thing. I mean, like, yeah, what we I just turned 51, so um, I'm sort of thinking about the the aging thing. And now I realize that I have like 30, uh, seven or eight years before I'm geared up and uh, warmed up and ready to go. You better get busy, yo. <laughs> well, I got 30, I got 37 years to figure it out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, so the, and it's definitely inspiring. And, um, you know, so you, she goes on this podcast, our no barriers podcast. And obviously we lead with this cool thing that she climbed Kilimanjaro twice and broke that age barrier. But really when you dive into it, that's just the icing on the cake. That's the gravy. That's like the top cream but really like her whole life is the is the no barriers uh equation you know at a young age having hardship having incredible support systems in her life um you know that sort of translating into a sense of purpose and drive and energy wanting to give back wanted to pay it back and have this thing that's bigger than you that sustains you and your longevity throughout your entire life so that's really cool for me, like just getting back from Mama de Blom and thinking, you know, God, okay, I closed this door, this chapter, and I should feel like, you know, I'm pounding my chest on top of the world. And mm. like you said, Jeff, like I got home and I'm like, okay, that was cool. But 
what's next? Mm -hmm. Right. Where do I go from here? Right. And, and so I think that's a question that we're always asking us. And, and uh, so Anne is a great example that, you know, you can keep powering forward with purpose in your life and you can keep asking yourself what's next. Uh, How do I impact the world? How do I elevate the world? And it never stops. And uh, so, yeah, I hope to live in that, in that way. In the Ann way. Awesome. Good podcast. Thanks, Eric. Ann, thank you so much. And I hope everyone enjoyed No Barriers. Thanks, Ann. I'm so glad to have been with you. And good luck on all your projects. See you next time. Thanks to all of you for listening to our podcast. We know that you have a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and so we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, which is called Guidance. The production team behind this podcast includes producers Diedrich Jonk and Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Laura Baldwin and Jamie Donnelly. Thanks to all you amazing people for the great work you do. Our minds, they are a change.